This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. And now, after years of planning, sweating, and going broke, here is the Boots and Whiskey Podcast with Jim Belisle. And left the media. Why they would give this man a podcast is anyone's guess. And there is what could only be a bizarre coincidence or something else. Welcome to the Boots and Whiskey Podcast with Jim Belisle. Trapped, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, sir. Country music and fine moonshine. You look like the vermin-ridden son of a bitch you are. A podcast for every in the good old USA and all around the world. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. Quality booze and country music at its best. So you're saying, can you set my country music award on fire? The music, nice and loud. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. You can email the show at bootsandwhiskeypodcast at gmail.com. That's bootsandwhiskeypodcast at gmail.com. Mail.com. It's just swimming with bow-legged women. All social media can be found at Boots and Whiskey Podcast. The show is great, even if you're sober. Well... My advice to you, start drinking heavily. Jim loves his music and his whiskey. A real woman could stop you from drinking. You have to be a real big woman. This is the Boots and Whiskey Podcast with Jim Belisle. Great music, great booze, and fun. Even for you non-drinkers. Y'all want to drink whiskey? <laughs> I'd like a Coca-Cola in a clean glass. Finally, a podcast that lets it all hang out. Let's level with America. Got your boots? Ready for some whiskey? These boots are made for walking. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over you. And now, the Boots and Whiskey Podcast with Jim Belisle. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Boots and Whiskey Podcast. This episode is something absolutely special to me. Um, You're not going to hear from an artist tonight. You're not going to hear from a producer. You're not going to hear from somebody in a band. Um, You're going to hear from somebody very special. in um, Somebody I have become very near and dear to me. Um, tonight's episode is going to be from a man who recently put out a book titled Merle Haggard was a friend of mine. Um, the conversation you're about to hear really, really is something I can't even tell you I could have imagined. Um, I have to thank Monty Byram from Big House and who has had a interview here on this show for this connection. Um, You're going to hear all about Ray's life and his life with Merle Haggard here in a few moments. Um, But I just wanted to say thank you again to Ray for sharing his time with me and talking about his time with Merle and everything that went with it. Um, definitely go get his book because 
if if you like these stories, the book just blows blows it out of the water. Um, I can't I can't even tell you how much this conversation means to me. Um, you know, it's it's absolutely incredible. So before we get into the conversation with Ray Ray McDonald, I want to thank again Mitch Max, Rowdy Roads, Dirt Road Scholar Supply Company, uh, American Grit and Grace, Afterglow Boutique, and everybody else that has made this show possible from, you know, my wife and my family to, you know, everybody else. Thank you all so much. Um, I really have nothing to say before this episode except for enjoy hello Raymond well hi how are you I'm fine this is really interesting I've never seen anything like this yeah it's um you know I tried to when I started this whole thing tried to find the easiest way to do this (laughs) you know because it was kind of like podcasting for dummies and I figured this was the easiest way for me to figure it out and (laughs) for everybody else to figure it out so (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, just uh, just now downloaded it, and here it is, already done. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, and it's it's easy. I can edit everything right in the app, and you know, I don't have to do anything super fancy. It's it's awesome. Are you having fun doing this? I am. I'm having actually a great time. You know, I've talked to you and met some really awesome people, and it's it's been a lot of fun. I see you have a, quite a diverse lineup. Uh, especially with new acts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to give some exposure to up and comers. I'm trying to, you know, get my feet wet in the industry and, you know, see where it takes me. Yeah. And that, they'll remember you as you go along, whether they become stars or have only one hit song, they'll always remember somebody that's trying to help. Them. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's been the hope, you know, so. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping I'm doing all right by everybody that I've talked to and, you know, and kind of see where it goes. Sure. It sounds like fun to me. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. You know, it's been, you know, I, it, it's taken me places already I never expected. Hmm. So it's it's definitely been a blessing and it's been, you know, an, an absolute blast. Yeah. And you're just getting started. I am. I am. You know, by the end of the year, I'll have done almost 70 interviews. And, you know, I really didn't start till the beginning of September. So, yeah. Are you uh, educated in journalism? Um, Not not professionally. (laughs) Um, You know, I know I know what I've taught myself. Yeah. You know, I don't have like a degree in it or anything. And you know, it's just, I thought one day, hey, I want to talk about country music, and I wonder if there's anybody else out there that wants to join me to do so. Oh, yeah. And come to find out there is. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot yeah. of people. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's been interesting, you know, and, you know, when I opened up the, the gates to people to book interviews and stuff, you know, the floodgates just opened. It was It was incredible. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah. I have I have to uh, before I forget tell you about a lady named Erin Enderlin. That's E R I N Erin, and Enderlin is E N D E R L I N. Erin Enderlin. She 
she sings about whiskey on every damn song. Awesome. I love her. She has many albums out. She's independent. She's okay. known as a songwriter in Nashville. Nice. She, she's had a lot of hit songs uh, by Alan Jackson, Randy Travis, uh, Leanne Womack, uh, some big names. Wow. And she's well-versed. They all know her. Even Luke Bryan and people like that, the new guys, have cut, yeah. her, have cut her song. She's a genius. But she's just a girl from, from uh, Arkansas that wound up in Nashville. Uh, but she would be perfect for your show. Yeah, I'm going to have to find her and reach out to her for sure. Because I, 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 I already love her story and I don't, I don't really know her. So I I'll, can't... I'll send you her contact information and I'll uh, let her know who you are and vice versa. And believe me, you would love this because <laughs> almost every one of her songs has something about whiskey in it. I love it. I love it. That's so good. That's awesome. So I wanted to mention Erin. She's really a great person. Awesome. Well, I can't, I can't wait to meet her, and I thank you for that, that, that introduction. Oh, yeah. She's great. You're going to love her. Awesome. So let's, let's talk about why you're here today. Okay. All right. So why don't you tell us all who you are and why you're here? Okay. Well, Jim, my name is Raymond Henry McDonald. I was born in Kansas in 1950, went to California in 1959, and in 1961, moved to Oildale, California, which is where Merle Haggard lived. And when I was 14 years old, uh, Merle Haggard appeared on television on a local TV show. Me and my mother watched this country music local TV show all the time. Here comes this guy on there singing. He's like, really good. We'd never seen him before. We had no idea who it was. So we're going, wow, that guy is good. Well, Merle was only 27 at the time. Nobody knew who he was. Just getting started. Well, after the TV show was over, Merle Haggard was, uh, uh, came home and lived across the street from me, as it turned out. Wow. And he, uh, somebody pulled up and kicked up the dust out there in Old Hill. In a, and uh, then a guy got out and started walking up to the house, and the car pulled away. And I seen him, and uh, I called my mother. I said, hey, the guy that was just singing on TV is walking up to the house across the street. And she said, no, he's not. And she, I was looking out the window, and she put her head over my shoulder, and she goes, well, well, it is him, and I know his mother. So Merle's mother and my mother were friends in 1964. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it was, uh, we knew he was a superstar. The first time we heard him sing, we thought, Jesus, listen to this guy sing. Yeah, he was, he was unlike anybody else. Exactly. And, you know, there really won't be anybody like him ever again. No. Never. never. Nope. So, so you, you figure out that this guy that lives across the street is the same guy that you see on TV. Yes, sir. Right. So how, how, how does that friendship start? Well, as it turns out, he'd seen me and my brothers and my friends playing in the street all the time. 
uh, playing football, baseball, and he's seen us, and he's seen me running all over Oildale because uh, that's what I did. I ran all – I was 14 years old. Well, the connection actually was not because he lived across the street. It was because he had done an album with Bonnie Owens, Buck Owens' ex-wife, mm-hmm. and Bonnie Owens' children were my age, and we were good friends. And I was over at their house one day, and Merle came over walking up the sidewalk. I'd never met him. I'd seen him many times. He knew who I was, and I knew who he was, but we'd never really met. And uh, he came walking up the, the sidewalk towards the house. We were all sitting in the front room. We'd seen him coming in there. And he came in and sat down. And I was strumming on a guitar, and it was out of tune. He goes, why don't you tune that guitar? I said, because I don't know how to tune the guitar. I think he took it from me and, and, and tuned it. But we were uh, introduced really through uh, Buck Owens and Bonnie Owens' kid uh, kids, Mike and Buddy Owens, who are my age. And uh, that's how I actually met Merle, was through Bonnie Owens and her children. Wow. That's, and, and at that time, right, it's just, you know, he's just a person. Right. He's not this larger than life, you know, superstar for for lack of a better word. Right. He's just so, getting started. Now, how is that relationship with, you know, your family and the Owenses? Like, do, do you at that age understand or grasp the magnitude Buck is at this time? Oh, yeah. Oh, OK. Because. Well, Buck and Bonnie divorced in 1952, so they'd been divorced 12, 13 years by the time Merle came around and started uh, singing with Bonnie. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, Buck was already a big star nationwide. He was was on uh, the Jimmy Dean show. He was on Jackie Gleason. And in those days, that was uh, the main TV shows, entertainment shows. He was a big star. So, yeah, we knew he was a big star. But Merle was just getting started. Yeah. So, now you, you know them. You've, you've been introduced. You know you know the Owens already. Um, as Merle's career starts to go and starts to get bigger and bigger, how, how did you get into all of that with him? Well, that's an interesting question. And... and uh, this is what happened at the end of the year uh, 1965 school year, which would be June. My mother and father moved to Los Angeles. And of course I went with them and uh, I didn't want to leave Waldell. When I got to Los Angeles, actually Southgate, which is a uh, kind of really near Watts where they had the Watts riots in 1965. So here I was uh, taken away from all my friends in Oildale and Bakersfield and living in L.A. And I didn't like L.A. had terrible uh, smog Mm -hmm. and people was weird. Uh, The first day we were there, I went for a walk and there was a guy in his in his uh, underwear uh, watering his lawn. And I thought that's the weirdest thing. Can't this guy even put on a pair of pants <laughs> and the smog? 
And then in August of 65, Jim, came the Watts riots, which is a famous, well-known fact. There's over 60 people killed. Uh, it was the heat of the summer. Terrible uh, seven or eight day, horrible riots. And everything was under curfew. We were next door to Watts, so we heard the shots and the sirens. We saw the flames and the smoke. And, and of course, the TV uh, was going all the time, giving updates on the horrible riots. And I hated that. And so I called Mike and Buddy Owens. As it turns out, in June of 1965, Merle married Bonnie. And so now my friend's uh, uh, father is Buck Owens, and their stepfather is Merle Haggard. Yeah, yeah. 1965. So I called Buddy and Mike Owens, and I said, hey, would you ask your mom and Merle if I can live with you guys back in Oldo? I don't want to live here. And as I understand it, Mike, who was my age, and Buddy's two years older than me, Mike, uh, they really wanted me to come and, and, and live with them because we were best friends. We were like brothers. Yeah. And as I understand it, uh, they approached Bonnie and Merle with that, and they go, well, we already got two teenagers. We got you. And Merle had four kids living with his mother across the street, as it turned out. And But they were going to live in a new house. Uh, Bonnie and Merle, Buddy and Mike, and Bonnie's mother. And they said no initially. But Mike, knowing that Merle had been in prison, said, if you don't let Raymond live with us, he's going to wind up in prison. <laughs> so with that, I'm sure that Merle made the decision. I don't want nobody going to prison, especially if I'm going to take them in. So I haven't been to prison yet, and I'm 71. That's awesome. Good for you. I've I've never been to prison either, which is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I think to to a lot of people is a surprise. That's it's like, it's, um. So so now you you've moved in with the Haggards, you know, yeah. for for the for lack of a you know better last name. Yeah. Um, and you're doing this thing now at this point, by the time you move in with them, is Merle at superstardom yet? Oh no, but he was gearing up big time. Yeah. I think he way. had his first number one, the year that I lived with him. In fact, I remember it vividly. It's in my book. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote this book called Merle Haggard was a friend of mine. Yeah. And it's out now. It's on book yep. baby. It's on Amazon. You can get it anywhere online. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. so anyway, in this book, I wrote about all of this. Uh, I really, it's overwhelming to me to kind of look back and see what happened. But Merle, in 1965, uh, he got his first number one song. And it was called, uh, All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. Oh, no, I'm a Lonesome Fugitive mm -hmm. was his first number one. Well, in those days, they would send you a uh, decoupage, a wooden decoupage of the top 50 songs of the week to you if you had a number one song. And Billboard magazine sent him a decoupage in the mail, and we got it in the mail, and I was there when he got it, and he unwrapped it and looked at it. He goes, look at that. I got a number one song in America. Oh, my God, I'm going to put this on the wall. 
So we went in the garage and got a hammer and a nail and started walking all around the house, and we were following him. Me and Buddy and Mike and Bonnie and Grandma, we were all following him all over the house. He was so excited. And we went in the bedroom. We went in the living room, the kitchen. We went all over the place and finally stopped in the hallway. He said, I'm going to put it right here. And I said, uh, I was chatty even then, Jim. And I said, Merle, why would you put your award in the hallway when most people would put it like above the fireplace or in the living room up, up there? And he goes, Ray, I've figured it out. I go down this hallway more than I do go in the living room. So I'll pass it more this way. <laughs> and that was his logic. Right. So he put that baby on the wall. It stayed there for years. And that, and that was the first of many um, awards to come. For, 40 number one songs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I like to tell people this story where, um, you know, country music wasn't always a staple in my life. Um, <laughs> but when I was, when I was growing up, uh, my other side of the family was all about, you know, the greats, right? The Merles, the Johnnies, um, you know, Willie Nelson, you know, ev everybody. And yeah. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't, you know, it was like, get me out of here. <laughs> you know, and now looking back, it's like, you know, how stupid am I to be sh so short-sighted at such a young age to realize how great it actually was? Jim, it wasn't all good. And even, <laughs> and even Merle himself told me, uh, in the, in, I was on the radio in 1968 as a country music disc jockey. Mm -hmm. And Merle came down to the station a couple of times with new records and stuff. But one time I told him, you know, I, I said, I really don't like like 90% of the music I'm having to play here. I don't like it. And I would play mostly his music, Johnny Cash, Buck Owens, Dolly Parton was around, George Jones, Jim Reeves, Patsy Cline. I loved all that stuff. But and there not, was a lot of it that wasn't no I'm good. Sorry. I was going to say, definitely not to name drop any of those people. <laughs> I got to tell you, those the people that uh, I couldn't stand, I'm not even going to say who they were, but there was a lot of them. They were out of tune. The songs all sounded the same. The, yeah. the lyrics were similar. The melodies were similar. The, you could tell the instruments were out of tune. In fact, one time Merle even told me, he says, and this was back in that era, he goes, Ray, there's only about 10% of the artists that's any good in country music. So, so it's almost like things haven't really changed much. <laughs> <laughs> At least for well, the stuff on the radio. Well, it just, you know, I like all kinds of music. And if it's good and it's in tune and it's interesting, that's cool. Yeah, I like absolutely. some of the rap stuff. I like some of the stuff the new kids are doing. I really do. Yeah, It's, yeah, it's yeah. really good, but it's not all good as right. you've referenced. Right, right. And, you know, you're right. It's, it's never going to be all good, right? No. Um. So now, so now you have all of these things, right? And Merle's going into superstardom. Mm -hmm. How do you become what you became to him? Well, I was like a son to him, and he was like a father to me. It was more, more at like a big brother thing because he wasn't that much older than me. Yeah, but he, but he took me fishing. We were good friends. Uh, he introduced me as one of his children to to strangers. Uh, very few times through the years, but I didn't work for him. I, uh, 
played his records on the radio and I helped him that way. You know, of course, everybody was playing Merle Haggard. Yeah. And uh, then I quit radio about 76 and uh, just kept in touch with him. I'd go see his concerts. I'd go to his home and visit with him. And I had my own family. I uh, went to Las Vegas and had uh, two kids. Uh, my daughter, Allison, is 45 now, and my son's 41. And I had my own family to raise in Las Vegas with my wife, Kathleen. And so it was a wonderful time for me to, to grow up. I worked as a surveyor in Las Vegas. I, I worked as a nightclub singer. I sang for about four years in Las Vegas. And Merle helped me a lot. He told me how to do it, do this, do that. But I never really worked for him, Jim. But I was his good friend, and, and he was mine. And then finally, in 1998, uh, he had called me up to his ranch to take some pictures uh, of cabins that are in that area in Northern California because he had a new gospel album that he had done called Cabin in the Hills. So he said, come up here and take some pictures of some cabins for me, and we'll put it on the album cover. So I did. While I was there, his office manager died of a heart attack. And he asked me to stay and take over his position. So I called my wife in Las Vegas. I said, look, it looks like I'm going to be here a few months. Merle wants me to take over the office position. So, Jim, that's the first time I actually worked for him for about, it was about seven or eight months in a row. I rented a house on his property. He paid me really good. And I got to know him and his uh, much better uh, because I was daily working with him. Right. And uh, and his wife, and then he had two young children at the time. They were like eight and four. From his Damn. fifth from his fifth wife. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I became well acquainted with that entire family. I worked hard for him. Then I went back to Las Vegas after about seven or eight months. And then uh, I got a divorce in 2000. So that freed me up to go up and work for him full time. If he'd, if he'd let me. So I called him. I said, and he was heartbroken that my wife and I had been together 28 years. He knew her since she was a child. Yeah. And uh, he said, yeah, come on up here. I'll give you, you can be my office manager again. So I went up in 2001 and worked for him for a year in his living room and uh, got to know the family even better because uh, it was daily, mm -hmm. eight, eight hours a day. And, uh, you know, dinner is at night sometime. Just the greatest guy, greatest guy, great dad. Uh, and wonderful to be around him. Uh, and then I quit and, and went off and drove cabs or something for a few years. And then he called me back again, 2009, and wanted me to come drive his band bus. His uh, band bus driver had quit in the middle of a tour. <laughs> And Merle knew that I was driving limousines, so I was driving, you know, uh, Hummers that were like 38 feet long, and I had to have a license for it. He knew I was sober, so he asked me to come drive that band bus in the middle of the night, called me in the middle of the night. I said, I'll do it. I was in Dallas the next day and stayed with him six years. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Um so let, I gotta I gotta ask because because I am a huge fan of you know now of of all of these greats. What are what are some 
stories that you could tell us or tell me about, you know, interactions between Merle and some of the other greats, um, you know, Johnny Cash or, you know, I know there's a story in the book about Frank Sinatra and, you know, all these other other things. What, what was that like? What was that dynamic like? Uh, when he was around the big superstars, I tried to give him his room. Yeah. And I don't think I was ever around him when Johnny Cash was around him. Even though Johnny Cash was like his mentor, his yeah. brother, his... If it wasn't for Johnny Cash, there wouldn't have been no Merle Haggard. That's pretty right. much a fact. Right, right. But uh, I was around him. A lot of big stars came around him. Uh, Chris Christopherson traveled with him and toured with him quite a bit. And he was in the back of the bus every night after a show. He'd bring a bottle of wine over without the cork in it. And Merle had something called marijuana going all the time. And Chris knew it. So they would sit back there and have a wonderful time every single night. Yeah. Talking all kinds of stuff, playing music, laughing. Just, and they became best friends. Yeah. And, and Merle didn't mind that I'd come back there and, and, you know, stand there and watch him, listen to him for, you know, five, ten minutes and then uh, let them have their fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other stars that came around, uh, he was, he lived up in Northern California. So he wasn't in Nashville where everybody was. Yeah. So he didn't, he didn't hobnob with all of them. But when he, they were all friends of his. They all absolutely ad admired him and adored him. Uh, all of them. I mean, he was the man. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he certainly was, you know, <laughs> for sure. You know, Dolly was in love with him. He was in love with Dolly. Uh, he even told me one time that uh, they were planning on doing a duet album. And I don't know what the problem was, but it was probably the record labels. Yeah. And and uh, it didn't happen. But uh, he told me that Dolly told him that if if they'd have ever done it. I can't use the language that he says Dolly used. <laughs> but it was going to be good. Uh, I, you know, I can only imagine what that would sound like. Oh, my God. Could, could you imagine something something that? spectacular with such you know really legendary artists doing a whole album together oh god that would have been great and it, and they're both they're the best songwriters yeah you know come on man yeah he, re yeah. he recorded a song of hers and early in his career called in the good old days mm -hmm. when times were bad <laughs> yeah and it's its greatest song and she was just getting started, too. It's like 65, I think, she wrote that song. And then, of course, she became an absolute superstar. Yeah. Yeah, she, you know, she has become the, you know, the face of country music. You know, and it's, you know, there's no, I don't think there's a better ambassador for the, for the genre than, than her. Well, there's only one alive still, and his name's Willie Nelson. Well, that, too. That, too. Yeah. Yeah. Willie, Willie is definitely the personification of, of what, you know, 
country music is and should be and was. And they were great friends. Willie uh, and Merle. Yes, Merle. Yeah. Oh, so admired Willie. And then when Willie took off and went past Merle and everybody else on record sales and worldwide popularity, that was fine with Merle. Yeah. Because Merle was fine with just doing his country music. And, you know, Willie was uh, different in, in that he came at the right time with the right music and this incredible talent that he has. But Merle was, until Willie came along, uh, making hit records, maybe 78 or 9 in there. Merle already had 13 years of number ones. Right. Willie didn't have a lot of hit hit songs when he was singing. Uh, he was known primarily as, as a songwriter. Everybody knows that. Right. Right. So how does, you know, how does the relationship with him and Willie turn into a relationship with Willie and Waylon? Do you know that story? I don't think that uh, if that's the case, I don't know about it. Oh, okay. I know, I, I know that, that Waylon was from Texas and Willie was from Texas. They were probably friends long before uh, Merle and, and Willie got together, even though gotcha. I know that I, even though I know they'd all met and they knew each other in the sixties. In fact, now that you say that, in 1966, uh, Red Foley and Waylon Jennings and a few other, Glenn Campbell, came to a concert in Bakersfield at the Civic Auditorium. Well, it's about 3,000 people. It was sold out. Me and Buddy and Mike went, and we're watching the show, and, and Bonnie and Merle were sitting up close, and they introduced Merle from the crowd, and he stood up, and the lights went on him. Then after the show... Uh, Merle told me and Buddy Owens to follow Waylon out to his hotel room and then guide him back to Merle's house where we lived in Oildale. Mm -hmm. So we're like, all right. So we're like 15 and 16, 17 years old, followed Waylon, went to his hotel room, came back out, had the same clothes on. I thought, well, he's going to change. He didn't change. And he had his wife driving him. He had, they had a Cadillac. And I thought that was really strange. He'd get in the back seat and she drove like she was a chauffeur. And I'm thinking, that's weird. That's country music star. All right. So we, we followed, they followed us back to Merle's house in Oldell and two or three of the band members was in there and they didn't smoke marijuana in the days. They smoked camels and uh, they drank whiskey and beer like you're supposed to. Yeah. And so uh, we're teenage boys, and we are super excited as they're getting ready to play some cards in the, in the kitchen, little bitty kitchen. So Waylon sat down, Merle sat down, a couple of the strangers sat down, and Merle looked up at us, and they had just dealt the first hand. And he looked at us, all three of us boys standing there and watching them like we were so excited to watch this. And Merle goes, good night, boys. Good night. <laughs> what? He goes, good night. And we go, God, man. So we went into our bedroom and listened to them rip, roar, play music, and laugh for about three hours. We finally went to sleep. I didn't put that in my book. I, I guess I should. Well, well now, I, now I've got the inside scoop. <laughs> yes, you do. I haven't mentioned that to anybody. That's awesome. That that's 
you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I know, you know, I know, you know, I've talked to, you know, Monty Byron and that's how I got into contact with you and, you know, to, to hear these stories. And I told Monty this, like, it's absolutely incredible, you know, to me, to be able to hear these stories from people that were actually there. Yes. You know, because it's it's not a lot. It's, you know, people like you, you know, we don't get these stories because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these people just aren't around anymore. Yes, sir. You know, so it's really important for these stories to, to continue and for, you know, for you to share them. And I, I can't thank you enough to do that. Oh, it's my pleasure. There's a, a 52 chapters. It's 326 pages long. It has 106 photos, probably 80% of them no one's ever seen. In this little book, Merle Haggard was a friend of mine. He was, this is a tribute to him. Uh, there are no cuss words in this because I wanted children to see it through the years that don't know who Merle Haggard is. Maybe they'll be in a library or a Goodwill or something 50 years or 100 years from then. They'll go, who is Merle Haggard? And if they read this, they'd go, my God, he hung out with Willie Nelson, Paul McCartney, and he did all this. He went to prison. He came out and became the biggest country music star in the world. Yeah. Now, speaking of Merle going to prison, is, this tro- is the story true where Johnny Cash says to Merle at one point, you know, if only everybody knew that you were the one that went to prison and not me. That is true. That is true. Oh, yeah. In fact, that... it was Johnny Cash that played a New Year's show with the Tennessee Three in San Quentin. Yeah. Where Merle was when he was only 21. Right. And, well, and... That was going to be my next question, actually. <laughs> he did turn 21 in prison. Yeah. But he wasn't doing life without parole. He had to right. exaggerate so it fit the song. Right. <laughs> You're right. We're, we're talking about Mama Tried. Right. Absolutely, we are. But it was Johnny Cash who, in 1960, had the courage to go to San Quentin and play for these inmates. And they loved him. Yeah. And, of course, Merle was in the front row. He'd been waiting. He knew who Johnny Cash was. He I liked Johnny Cash. Right. And then he... I mean, come on, man. And he said, that changed my life. He said, that's when I decided I wouldn't be uh, a Bonnie and Clyde. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a, a, a criminal no more. I was going to turn my life around. And when I came out, I was going to be a singer like Johnny Cash. And that's you know, what happened. It's, it's funny because I've always heard the, the story of Merle being there and, and all that. But you're, I never really knew for sure whether it was just a you know, a good story or if it actually really did happen. It did. And and this was, of course, later in, in Merle's career when everybody was going all, well, we've got some outlaws in country music. We got Waylon, we got Willie, we got Johnny Cash. But Johnny Cash came along and said, hell, none of us are outlaws. The real one is the guy who's been to prison. And that's right. Merle. Yeah. And, and in fact, it was Johnny Cash that encouraged Merle to write songs and and let the public know, yeah, I was in prison, but look at me, I'm out. Look at all the prison songs he wrote that were number one songs. Now they're classics, Sing Me Back Home. Yeah. And it was Johnny Cash who said, don't hide the fact you went to prison. Exploit it. 
right? And that was a good move. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because it's like I I tell people all the time, like, and that's why I love doing these these conversations is because you know you don't get a real sense of somebody through their music, I don't think, without really understanding where the music's coming from. Oh boy. You know, yes. so you know, so that's why I tell everybody, you know, this isn't this isn't your your typical interview. I want to know about you. I want to know about where you've come from and why you're writing these songs the way you are. Exactly. You know, because it, it makes you appreciate the song and the music much more than you would have if you don't know the story. That's true. And almost all of his songs are personal experience. Right. Right. Especially then, you know. Oh, yeah. But his, his uh, melodies were different. Yes. They, they weren't standard. They were different. They had, and of course, his voice it was so controlled. He had Glenn Campbell singing on his records, James Burton, Roy Nichols, Norman Hamlet, uh, these incredible musicians. And of course, Bonnie sang harmony with him through all those years. And she was as part, big a part of Merle Haggard music as anybody was. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how long after him and Bonnie split did she continue to be in his career? Uh, she, they divorced, I think, about 76, right in there. And I'm not sure how long she was away from him, but she went back and toured with him for years. I know she was touring with him in the early 2000s. Yeah. And then she died in 2006. Yeah. But she had she had got Alzheimer's and and of course she couldn't remember uh, lyrics anymore and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's that's, really sad. It, yeah, it is sad. It's sad. It's unfortunate. But he um, loved her. He loved her. I think out of all his wives, he loved her the most. I think that's no secret. Right. She helped him the most. She was uh, just a, a jewel. Yeah. Now, did she and and Buck stay close after after their split, or was that um, kind of not the case? I think they were friends. Yeah. Uh, every time I saw them around each other, they were friends, and they'd hug each other, and uh, they had long been since divorced, of course. Right. And and yeah, they did remain friends. I I can say that confidently. Yeah. Well, that that's always that's always nice. Yeah. Um, so after her passing, how how did that affect Merle and his his career and his music and his life? Well, that's a great question, man. Uh, of course, he was heartbroken, hmm. but uh, he wrote a song for her, and it was called "Wouldn't That Be Something." It's on the 501 Blues album from 1989. And uh, Today I Started Loving You Again was also written towards her. That's why those songs came out. But he, yeah. uh, I'm sure that she, he had kept close tabs on her. Uh, she was in a, a rest home, for lack of a better word, rest mm -hmm. home. And she was, had the Alzheimer's. So, but I used to go see her all the time in Bakersfield. She was there a couple of years, it seemed like. 
And one day he called me from the road, my mobile phone. He was up in, I think, uh, the, the Dakotas or somewhere. And he wanted to talk to Bonnie. He said, can you go over and take your phone over and, and get Bonnie on the phone? And I go, sure. So I drove over there. I went into her little apartment and sat down next to her. And I said, Merle wants to talk to you. And she said, okay. So Merle, Merle called my phone. And uh, I gave it to Bonnie. And Merle must have said, uh, hey, Bon. And, and she, she looked at me and she winked and she goes, who is this? <laughs> that was sweet. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, it's funny to hear you tell this story because it's like that, you know, in, in today's craziness, you know, you don't see a lot of love stories like that anymore. Oh, I'll tell you what, Jim, if they ever do the life story of Merle Haggard, they can't do it in an hour and a half. Yeah. I'll tell you this quick little story that's, again, I don't think it's in my book. I, well, I forgot everything in this book. Not really. I, but, but this one particular <laughs> thing, I don't know if I put it in there or not. But we were driving from uh, Bakersfield to Arizona. So you got to come uh, from Bakersfield down to L.A. And then you go across the top of Los Angeles, which is 210, up around Pasadena where the Rose Bowl is and in there. Mm-hmm. And if you look down, you can see Burbank and Hollywood and all that, all the lights. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. I'll never forget this. I'm driving his bus, and he's in his jump seat. And I said, Merle, why don't you let those folks down there do your story? He goes, Ray, they can't do my story in an hour and a half. (laughs) He said, the only way they can do it, and I wish they would, is do it in segments, like 10 one-hour segments. This was in two, 2011 he was talking like that. That's yeah. before the, the way it is now with Hulu, uh, HBO, Showtime, uh, Amazon Prime, all of these different uh, TV s- stations now that do that. Series, yeah. are, series are the fad, and they work great. I mean, I love billions and stuff like that. This stuff is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but it's one hour every week for like eight ten weeks, and then to start up another year. Well, that's what they should do to Merle Haggard's story, and that's what he wanted done. So, so now let me ask you. Now I've seen a lot of um, reports and things like that about there being a Merle Haggard biopic coming, and Sam Rockwell was. Supp- is supposed to be Merle. Is that still a thing or is that not a thing anymore? Well, from what I understand, uh, I was around when, of course, that came out. And uh, that was in July of uh, 2019, I think. Yeah. And it fizzled out within a month. Yeah. But the story was that his uh, widow, I'm not even going to say her name because we don't get along. Uh, she's done some bad things to, uh, to my uh, personal life and we don't get along and it's a long story I didn't put it in the book but but the m- main thing is this she came out with a uh, publicity agent and said I'm going to write my husband's 
a story. I'm going to do a screenplay. And Sam Rockwell is going to play Merle Haggard. We've got a contract with Amazon. Big deal. So yeah. TV, radio, everywhere. Big deal. All right. All right. And I'm thinking, no way. Because she don't know how to write a screenplay. You don't just go write a screenplay. Right. Right. You have to be instructed. You have to be educated. You have to work at it. There's got there's a thousand screenwriters in Hollywood that, that probably write up a great one, but but she wasn't qualified to do it. She doesn't do that. And who's Sam Rockwell? Sam Rockwell's one of the greatest actors of our generation. Yeah. I mean, just great. I'm thinking, yes. well, great. If if that happens, great. But then a month later, it all fizzled out. Didn't happen, ain't gonna happen. That's a bummer. That's a real bummer. Yeah, but yeah, but Jim, to me, if they would just do what he wanted, and if his widow would let his legacy continue and let somebody do that, what he wanted, you could start off with eight episodes on Hulu or whatever. Yeah. And then, and he wanted, actually, he wanted them named after his songs. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So each, would each episode be about how that song came to be? It would certainly have something to generate to, the, yeah. the hour. Yeah. And I mean, but I'll tell you what, if they ever do it, they could do it. I know they could do it. It would be so successful that I I wish they'd do it. Somebody, I wish somebody would, they'd say, okay, do it. Because I've been approached by helping people do this. They want to talk to me about putting it together. And then they ask, well, uh, Mrs. Haggard has the control of his estate and she won't sign off on nothing. Right. So... It's too bad because, man, if they'll ever let this happen, it's such an incredibly American success story that there's people wouldn't even believe it. Okay, the guy goes to prison. You could start with that. Or you could start with his father dying when he was nine years old. He was only nine. Yeah. And it completely broke his heart. And you could start with that. And then he's got to go through the reform schools. He went to high school for a week and dropped out, started riding rails and, uh, and stealing things, got trouble, was in reform schools for a year, wound up in jails for a couple of years. Finally at 19 winds up in San Quentin prison. Yeah. Unbelievable. So he gets out of San Quentin prison two years and nine months. He was only 21, 22 years old, but he told me this great story. And I did put this in my book about the day that he got out of prison, which was February the 2nd or 3rd. Let me look at this. Let me look it up myself. I'm looking at my book here. What, what, what was the date? Oh, man. Hang in there. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> February 3rd, 1960. A New Life. That's the name of the chapter. And just off the top of my head, uh, he told me the story so many times. He was so proud of that day that he got out of prison. So he's leaving prison, Jim. He's got his suit on and a little bag of clothes. And the guards were letting him out of the big gate. And the guard shack was playing a country music song on the radio by Hank Snow called uh, Last Long Ride. And Merle told me the story many times. He said, Ray, I'm leaving. 
and they opened up the gates and they're letting me out and they all knew me because he played guitar and sang in there. They knew who he was. They said, bye, Merle, you can go now. And he said, do you mind if I, if I wait and, and hear this song? And they go, no. Okay. First time that ever happened. And he listened to the song called Last Long Ride by Hank Snow. And it, it so enchanted him and grabbed him that he actually halted his walk to freedom to hear the song. <laughs> and he said, that's how they should start my movie. That scene. I'm leaving prison. Yeah. He told me that 10 times at least. So I wish somebody would listen. Maybe somebody's listening to your podcast will go, hey, look. Hey, right. you never know. If we could get on board, they could they could make a hell of a of a series out of it. Not a not a two hour movie, no, but a ten even series stuff. Yeah, like the Waltons or something, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I go ahead. No, anyway, that song in my book, I I reference these things and I ask people to go on YouTube. And look it up, and you'll find these songs. So you can see where Merle was coming from, rather than go, well, I wonder what that song sounds like. Hell, just stop your, tell Alexa to do this or do that, yeah. and, and they'll play it for you. A lot of my friends have done that, and they, they love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so I wanted to ask what you know about, you know, the whole, you know, I know... Merle's family lived in Oklahoma for a short time. So how does the whole legend come, come about that, you know, Merle's, you know, from Oklahoma and has those, you know, those deep roots when we know that's not the case. Well, and you're right. His father was from Chicota, Oklahoma, and his mother was from Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And he, his family, he has two, uh, he had two older siblings. His sister uh, is still alive. She's 100 years old and she lives in Bakersfield. Her name is Lillian. She's 16 years older than Merle. And his brother was, I think, 15 years older than him, Lowell. And he died in like 1995. But Uh-oh. Yes, sir. So that was weird. I don't know what happened there. But... It just completely dropped out. Yeah, completely. That's weird. Oh, you know what? I, 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 I don't know if it was you calling. Somebody called me. I didn't recognize the number, and then it dropped out. Oh, that's probably what happened, because that's happened to me where somebody was trying to call me, and it, it interrupts it. But anyway, huh. um, so dies in 95 and we're talking about how the legend of him being from you know having those Oklahoma roots and being the Okie from Muskogee yeah the the Okie thing he was always really proud of because his dad was proud of being an Okie they were called Okies back in the uh, 30s yeah. when they came out to California an Archie or an Okie and Merle I heard him in interviews and that he had said that 
when people called him that, they didn't really have a nice tone to it. They were looked down upon, frowned down upon. Yeah. They didn't want the Mokies in California. But they were really good, hardworking people. And that's how the legend of Merle uh, being from Oklahoma, I think, started. It was because that's where his family was from. But he was born in Bakersfield. Yeah. California. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's, that's a, that's a cool legend, you know, regardless if it's, you know, actual or not, you know, it's, it's cool to hear, you know, why that was the way it was. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've, you know, I've got a few other, um, things that I've been actually dying to ask you about since, you know, our introduction and trying to get this all done and all that. So I'll take a few more minutes of your time. So I'm not talking to you all night. Cause I could trust me. I could. Um, so now you have this life, you know, more or less this lifelong relationship with Merle and you've worked for him. You're right. Driving his bus. Um, what's it like? And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get deep here now. Right. And I, I apologize if there's things you don't want to talk about. And I totally understand if you don't, um, what happens to you when you find out Merle's sick? How does this affect you? Not even just on a personal level, not even on a career level, but on a personal level. Well, great concern. First of all, the first time he got sick was in 2008. Mm-hmm. He had a cancer in his right lung. And for some reason, I'll tell you this, I don't, this is not in the book either, but it's insightful. Uh, he was stubborn, and he had a really good doctor who was a really good friend of ours, uh, Dr. M.C. Barnard. And the doctor uh, found out that he had the cancer. Uh, they, there was a small, uh, they did a biopsy, and they found out that's what it was. And it was small, and uh, the x-rays were showing it small. And uh, for some reason, uh, Merle's wife uh, convinced him to, to put a, some sort of a, of a rock, uh, tape it to his back on top of where the tumor was in an effort to uh, make it subside, the tumor. And... I actually went up to see him in June of that year and they found it in like May. And I went up to June, I think it was June. I went to see his daughter graduate from high school and we were sitting in the stands. And when we left, I put my hand on his back and I felt that rock. And I'd heard about that rock and it was just kind of accidental. And I go, what's that? He goes, that's a rock. It's going to pull that tumor out of me. I thought, oh, my God, because his doctor did not want that done. Yeah. He wanted it to go in and be treated and with a machine and zap it, and that's yeah. what they do. Well, yeah. so we let it ride for two, three months, and September came around, and uh, Merle's doctor called me. We were good friends, and he goes, hey, uh, Merle was supposed to go down and get another X-ray done today, and he didn't do it. He goes, and I'm begging him to do it. He won't do it. And if we can't find out what's going on, whether we can't treat it, and if it gets out of control, he's going to die a horrible death. He goes, would you call him for me? 
and ask him why he didn't go get his x-ray today. So I said, sure. So I called Merle. He was home. And I go, hey, uh, doctor just called me and said, you missed your, your appointment today. It's, why is that? He goes, oh, I forgot about that. I said, Merle, a lot of people love you. And the doctor's upset. And he wants to see that. He needs to keep an eye on that tumor. So Merle goes, all right, I'll go tomorrow. Tell him I'll go tomorrow. So he did go the next day. And the x-ray showed it getting really big. And the rock didn't work. And so uh, with that information, uh, Merle was all the way in Minnesota or somewhere way back there from California. So this good doctor uh, dropped all of his cases and flew out there and, and told him, okay, it's too big. Now you got to cut it out. And Merle said, all right, well, you find me a really good doctor in Bakersfield to do it. I trust you with my life. So he did. They did the uh, operation about November the 4th or 5th of 2008. And it was successful. They got it out of there. He didn't follow up with any chemotherapy or, or anything like that. And, and luckily, uh, they, they caught it in time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I wasn't the only one encouraging Merle to stop with this rock thing and go with the, with the methods that work. Right. And they might not be pretty, but they work. Well, he had a big scar in the back of his, uh, on his back from that surgery. They took it out through his back, through his right lung. In fact, they had to remove a portion of his lung. And all of that right there was extremely disturbing because we almost lost him. Yeah. And he was just being stubborn. And uh, he or he was listening to bad advice. That's the way I garner it. Yeah. And, and but he would say he was saved. And then he went on and became even stronger. He got the Kennedy Center honors. He was making yeah. great music. Yeah. And singing great and playing everywhere. Sold out shows all over America. I drove him all over America. I drove him at least five years, probably 700,000 miles. We went to every state in the, uh, in the continuous uh, states. So, yeah, he did great. But then when he got sick again, uh, again, he was being stubborn about it. And then he, in fact, uh, I don't think I've told this story either when, it was 2015 in December. We'd gone on tour, and he couldn't do a show. He was backstage and ready to walk on, and he couldn't do it. So I, I, I begged him to go uh, to the hospital then. We were in Palm Springs, California, and he wouldn't go. He goes, I'll be fine. Just take me to the next show. Go to Riverside, and that was only 100 miles away. So I begged him to go to the hospital. He wouldn't go, Jim. Finally, uh uh, I took him to Riverside and I got up the next morning about 11 in the morning, went out to check him on him on the bus. He didn't go in the hotel. And uh, he said, take me back to Palm Springs. I'm dying. He was in terrible pain. And so I hauled ass back to uh, Palm Springs to the Eisenhower Medical Center. And uh, Jackie Autry, Gene Autry's widow, mm-hmm. had arranged for him to have extreme care immediately 
and be as confidential as possible. I had all the numbers. I called them all. They were ready. We took them in there. Uh, he got in the emergency room, got his smock on. They put him in a wheelchair. There's about five or six of us sitting around and uh, standing around watching him. And he goes, I'll never forget this. I think I did put this in the book. He said, if this cancer is back, I'm not going to let him treat it. I'm going home to see my dad. And he pointed to the heavens. Damn. And that got me. And it still does. I'm having chills right now because he meant it. He missed his dad for 70 years. Yeah. And he wanted to go home and see his dad. And he wasn't going to let him cut him up. He wasn't going to let him have no chemotherapy. He had had friends die of cancer, and he's seen them in the horrible shape and what it does to you. He wasn't going to let him do that. But he had the pneumonia back again really bad. And uh, he was there two weeks, three weeks, and then he finally went home and and he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to not work anymore, and he went back to work, and he could barely sing. He could barely walk. Should have never went back out. And I supposed, Jim, and to your audience, that he went home to yeah. his dad. So when he died, and I knew it was coming because he told me. He called me from his hospital bed a couple times. And he sounded so r relieved. Like, I can take this. I can do this. And then when he died, it shocked me, of course. Yeah. And I had friends come around me that, that knew me really well, knew of, of my relationship with him. Uh, Chuck Seaton from Big House, Kip Sullivan, and uh, Lauren Stumbaugh, three really good friends from Bakersfield, came around and, and we went to Oldell and went to all the bars he used to go to and places he used to shoot pool and we went to his diner, uh, wool growers down there in Bakersfield. He used to like to dine at and kept me from fainting because I was about to faint four or five times that day, but they kept me, kept me uh, awake. But I never did cry because I felt like he went home to see his dad. Yeah. Well, you know, just hearing that, you know, I've, I've, I've got goosebumps. You know, I, I, I didn't know Merle at all, but I feel like I've, I feel like a part of me knows him a lot better after, after this conversation. Well, Jim, that's what the book's for. It's for his fans. I wanted to just do this for his fans. It's, it's a fraction of what I saw. Yeah. But there's a lot of stories in there that his fans will like, and it's yeah. really a positive, loving book. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I can't, I, I almost have no words you know, where I can't imagine being, being you, I can't imagine, you know, living the life you've lived, you know, so far and having such a really, you know, to, to somebody like me, you, you've had an It's been, it's been eventful. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's incredible. You know, I want to say uh, during this podcast and almost any, and I've done many interviews about this book, uh, I have to give credit to three people that helped me immensely with this book because uh, 
Uh, I wrote down all the stories and typed them all out, but they're Reader's Digest quality, you know. Yeah. My my son is a writer, and he's 41. The name is Benjamin McDonald. Is up in Sparks with his two kids, Braden and Gage, and his wife Faustin. And he wrote, he rewrote probably a third of the book. But he's so busy that's all he could do. But he he put it from say Reader's Digest quality like me to the New Yorker magazine, okay, or or Esquire, or you know, you know what I'm saying, a writer, yeah. a, a real writer, right? Tremendous work he did, really did. I didn't even recognize the story when he got done with it. The Frank <laughs> Frank Sinatra story he did, Natalie Cole story he did, Beatles, uh, Rolling Stones, all this, all those, and man, he did great. Even the first chapter, going to California, he did just it's great, great work. And then my my friend Rebecca Sheeran who's my age. Well, she's a year older than me. I met her in Oldell. She lived around the corner from me and Merle and the Owenses, and she was the prettiest girl in school. So I had to go over and meet her. And I called her. I said, hey, uh, can I come over and meet you? I've seen you at school. You sure are pretty. And she said, who are you? I said, I'm Ray McDonald. I live at Merle Haggard's house. And she goes, come on over. So I went over. Played her a couple of songs, took a Merle Haggard album with me. In fact, it wasn't even out yet. And I asked him, can I take this over and play it for her? I'm trying to uh, make a, a, a move here on this, this girl. And he goes, well, sure, but don't break it. It's the only one I got in the whole damn world. <laughs> so I said, all right. So I took it over there and played it for her and her family. And it was an Ozzy and Harriet type thing with this little Indian boy, me, in the middle of it. She's the one who put the whole book together, Rebecca Sheeran. Uh, when COVID came along, she had retired from her job. She's a computer genius. And she's the one who put the whole book together, editing-wise, picture-wise, framed it all. It took her eight months. And then my sister, Connie McDonald, is a re retired California school teacher. She helped edit it as well. So those three helped me immensely. And then Bob Price the great writer out of Bakersfield, uh, uh, who also has a, uh, some books out about Bakersfield. Uh, he helped steer me in the right direction on how to do it. Wow. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's really well done. It's really well put together. And really, it's, it, it really is a, a treasure. That's for sure. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, I, I don't know what more to say, <laughs> to be to be totally honest. Like I have I have plenty of things I I you know I can go into, but um, you know I I can't thank you enough for your time and in your stories. You know that it's they're absolutely incredible, and you know they're just they're just incredible. You know I I can't thank you enough for for calling in and and talking to me and telling me about, about your time with Merle and, and the rest of your life. It's, it's really been incredible. Well, it's my honor. And I, and I do want to say, uh, I've been watching your uh, podcast on uh, Instagram a lot. And you have a lot of new artists, diverse artists that you're trying to help. And there's going to be a, uh, somebody come out of that group. In fact, maybe all of them. Yeah. They're going to be big stars someday because of people like you that want to help them. Well, and they've all, they've all got interesting stories. Everybody has an interesting story. 
You know they do. And especially these entertainers who have to work hard. This ain't easy. It ain't easy to take a guitar, sing in tune, remember this, these words and go up there and, and entertain people. It's got to be in their heart. And you're finding all these people I've never even heard of. Yeah. But they look good. They're young. They know what they're doing. They want to do it. And that's where Merle Haggard came from. It, and so did Buck Owens and, and Willie Nelson. They love to do that playing and singing. In fact, out of the whole thing, I have to encourage anybody that's listening that has never even heard a Merle Haggard song or doesn't know who Merle Haggard is. And believe me, there's plenty of people. They should listen to at least one. Just pick one. Then you'd be hooked and go, uh-oh, now I've got to, have to listen to more of this. And uh, it's just really great music that he left the world. It'll never go away. Yeah. Yeah, no. I, and I, I hope it never does go away. Never will. I hope, I hope it never has to go away. There's, uh, a guy, there's a guy that wrote a book with Merle. Uh, I think it's called uh, My House of Memories. His name is Tom Carter. He wrote it with Merle about 99. And at the end of the book, this guy wrote, in the end, the only thing that's going to be left on the earth is sagebrush and Merle Haggard music. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's... <laughs> I I I've like I have so many so much so much in my brain that's going going on right now. Well, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. You know, because I have, you know, this 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 podcast could go on for hours and hours and hours. Um, but yeah, I would I would love to chat again and and hear more about, you know, your life and you know, everything that is, that has happened with Merle and everybody else, you know, it's, it's been incredible. Well, uh, the music is, was his life. He loved it so much. Yeah. And, and he was always happy with a guitar. I never seen him sad with a guitar. He sings sad songs, but he was, he was so contented having a guitar in his hands. Yeah. Yeah. No, Absolutely. I, you know, and, and you can tell that from his music and from, you know, the way he carried himself throughout his career that, you know, everything he did was, was from, from the soul. Yep. Yes, it's, it was. And, you know, I, again, I can't thank you enough for, for writing this book and putting these stories out there for the whole world to enjoy. Well, uh, again, thank you. And, and I want to remind your listeners that, the name of the book is Merle Haggard. It was a friend of mine. And it's published by Book Baby out of New Jersey, actually. And I think he would have liked that, that it's an American-published, American-made uh, book. And uh, Book Baby's the publisher. But, of course, it can be found on any major situation. You can find it through Walmart, Target, Amazon, online, all of that. And uh, it's doing all right, but we're going to put it we're going to put a push on it probably in November and December and try to get it to the uh, Christmas crowd. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, let me know anything you need and I'll, you know, I'll get it out there too for everybody to, 
to get get as well. Absolutely. Well, you you bet. I sent you a picture today. I you did, and you know what? I wanted to because I was gonna throw it out there as like a teaser of you know like you'll never you'll never guess who's gonna be on this show. Um, <laughs> Bob you, Dylan, yeah. Merle Haggard, and Buck Owens, and that story's in the book too about how they met. So how how does be you know before we call it a night? How does that picture come to be with you in the background like that? I was there as Buck's assistant in 2005 and he had a girlfriend i had a girlfriend and he wanted me to fly up to portland with him and his girlfriend and my girlfriend on his jet and go watch bob dylan and merle haggard bob had called buck and said hey uh i'm a big fan can you come up and see me and buck said sure and merle was opening for bob dylan at the time and merle did the same thing hey buck you want to come up and see us so we did so when I worked for Buck, he wanted me in a suit. Uh, so I said, okay. And that red, white, and blue Telecaster guitar is a custom Buck Owens guitar uh, made by Mark Kendrick from Fender. And the, uh, the guitar has an inscription on it on the brass plate, the guitar pick plate. It says, a friend to ride the river with, Buck Owens to Bob Dylan. And I carried it up there and I actually gave it to Buck and he handed it to uh, uh, Bob and they had a professional photographer taking those pictures and I just happened to be standing there. That's awesome. That's so incredible. Oh, those three. Are you kidding? Uh, Come on, man. Yeah. And, and something happened that night when uh, Merle called Buck up on the stage. And Buck didn't know he was going to do it. And I heard this roar. And I go, what the hell's going on? And Buck was coming off the stage then with tears in his eyes. I've never seen him cry. Tears. And uh, he said, Raymond, you don't know how much this moment has meant to me. Where Buck Owens was introduced to that crowd. They didn't know he was there. And they went crazy. Yeah. There's Merle Haggard and Buck Owens standing on the stage together. And oh, by the way, Bob Dylan's next. Did I lose you? No, I'm. I'm. I was just waiting for a response. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I heard Bob. <laughs> I heard Bob Dylan's next, and then I was, I was wait, I was waiting for the for the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of how I was writing my book, too. It was like, uh, isn't there more to this? <laughs> Stop. Oh, man, well, that, that's an incredible story. It really is. And, and um, I'm glad it's the last story of the night so that when I tease it, everybody's going to listen to the whole, the whole episode till, we, till they get to it. <laughs> yeah, and, and please, if, if you can, uh, put that picture up there. I've put it on facebook and instagram for years yeah it's a it's a classic it is it absolutely is you know it, it's and it's actually funny right because and i'm going to tell you this little story so after monty and i had this conversation about you and he said monty says to me you know jim you know ray mcdonald's gonna to want to talk to you for sure absolutely and he tells me who you are and your story and you know my mouth kind of drops and i'm like there's no way somebody like this is going to want to tell somebody like me his story. <laughs> so 
So I was like, oh. okay, I was like, okay, Monty, sure, right? So when the ball started to roll and, you know, we got into contact with one another, I sent my wife that picture and I said, you'll never guess which one of these people in this picture wants to talk to me. <laughs> and she goes, none of them, because two out of the three are dead. <laughs> and, and, I go, <laughs> and I go, well... You know, I, I, she goes, Bob Dylan is not going to be talking to you. <laughs> and I go, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and so I, t- I tell her about you and she's like, she, and she said the same thing. She's like, there's no way. There's no way. And, you know, sure enough, you know, it, here we are. Well, I'm glad to do it. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's as far as I'm concerned, you're doing quite a tribute to all these musicians but you picked out a good one. This guy, Merle Haggard, is just the best. And by the way, Monty is so talented and such yes. a good guy that I, I've, he's a good friend, but he's overwhelmingly good. Yeah, Buck was is. a fan. Merle was a fan. Uh, and he still is an incredible singer, songwriter, guitarist. Out of the three in Bakersfield, I always tell everybody this. It's, it's Merle Buck and, and Monty Byron. Yeah, you know, and, and from the more I see of Monty and all of his stuff, like I really have gotten that sense that, you know, he is part of the pack for sure. Oh yeah, he's Bakersfield Sound. Yeah, he's the new Bakersfield Sound. Yeah, and and just an incredible uh, musician uh, person. Yeah, he sure is. Well, you know, I I can't thank you enough for for your time this evening and and talking to me and telling me these stories. I, I, I truly appreciate it more than I think you'll ever, ever really know. Well, I appreciate it as well, sir. And I thank you for your time. Thank you. And, and we'll talk again super soon. I hope. Absolutely. Anytime. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ray. I, 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 I again, I can't, I can't thank you enough. Jim, you're welcome, sir. And we'll, uh, we'll be in touch really soon. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Have a great night. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, there you have it. Um, again, these these stories are one of a kind. I can't thank Ray enough for telling his story with Merle and everything that went with it. Um, it's an absolutely incredible story, and I honestly cannot wait to talk to Raymond McDonald again. Um, I think it's going to be the first of many conversations we have together on this show. So really, wow, what do, you, what do you say after a conversation like that, except for thank you, right? Um, so Ray, thanks so much again. Um, I can't tell you what the, that hour meant to me. I really can't. Um, you know, I'm a huge Merle Haggard fan, as I'm sure many of you are. Um, and to hear these stories is just, you know, it's one of those things where I had to listen back to this audio a few times to even realize what I was hearing. Um, and as always, it's presented to you just in the way it was, ha- it was done. Um, so Ray, thank you so much to the, to the Haggards and the Owens, you know, thank you for your dad and for your friend and, um, for everybody else. Ray, thank you for your time and thank you for telling us your story with your friend. Um, I greatly appreciate it so much. Um, so as always, find us on our social media platforms. You know where they are. 
uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, uh, Venmo. Um, yeah, <laughs> I just, I still can't get over that. Um, so until next time, keep your boots on the ground and the whiskey in the glass. Good night, everyone.